0: you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 9. And again, we will be in the final verses of Luke chapter 9. Before becoming a Christian, the great Christian that he was, Augustine was a brilliant philosopher, but he was also one who reveled in his sin. And at one point he was living with a mistress and yet he wanted to go and hear the preaching of Ambrose, the great preacher in Milan. He was going there simply to experience the rhetorical skills of Ambrose, the preacher. So he went and he went with some friends. The friends quickly turned away, but Augustine was captivated. He was captivated by Ambrose preaching about the holiness and the glory of God. But then as Augustine's mind would be captivated by the truth that he was hearing from the scriptures. His mind would also turn back to what was waiting for him at home. This woman who, though not his wife, one that he cared for deeply. And in the midst of this spiritual battle for his soul, he writes in his biography that he famously prayed, O Lord, make me good, but not yet. Make me good, but not yet. The story of Augustine gets to the very heartbeats of this these final verses of Luke 9. And here we see people saying to Jesus, I will follow you, but not yet. But not yet. How does Jesus respond? How should we expect him to respond? When we today say the same kind of thing, I will follow you, Jesus, but not yet. I will follow you, Jesus, but not that far. I will follow you, Jesus, if only you will do this thing for me. How should we expect Jesus to respond? Well, let's see. Let's follow along. I would encourage you as I read, beginning at verse 57. Luke says, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, that is Jesus, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes. And the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of of God. This is the word of God this morning. May he bless its reading and hearing. Notice the common word in all of these vignettes, the word follow. It's in verse 57 and verse 59 and again in verse 61. Sometimes it's a command, sometimes it's a statement of commitment, but it's this word follow that holds these three accounts together. Notice again how Luke begins. He says these encounters happened as they were going along the road. Now, where were Jesus and the disciples going? Well, just look up a few verses and you'll be reminded of what we talked about last week, and that is Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. He has determined, according to the Father's leadership, that now is the time for him to begin his path to the cross, where he will make atonement for sins. And along that way, along that path to Jerusalem, Luke reminds minds is that jesus continued to encounter people people who heard the call to follow jesus as disciples but what does it mean to follow jesus as a disciple what does that life look like what is the expectations that jesus himself has for those who would follow after him i often fear that people believe following jesus is doing him some kind of a favor Jesus, all right, all right, I'll be your disciple. I'll do this for you. But usually what follows with that mindset is some kind of terms of agreement, some kind of pact or contract. Look, I'm going to believe in you like you want, but now you need to do this for me. You need to make sure I have this kind of life. Jesus, if I'm going to be your disciple, these are the expectations I have. But Jesus says that's the opposite of the way. His disciples come to him. There are no negotiations. There are no terms of agreement. I lead and you follow. That's what Jesus says. Therefore, Luke reminds us, even today, just as he reminded those first readers of his gospel, if we presume to follow Jesus and his disciples, that is wonderful. That is great. There is no greater privilege. But we had first better count the cost we'd first better understand what are Jesus' expectations for those that follow him. And these three men we see, three would-be disciples, three people who failed to count the cost, who failed to understand the level of commitment necessary to follow Jesus. Three people who had false ideas about what discipleship is about, and we do not want to make their mistakes this morning. Instead, we want to learn from them. We want to see what it means to follow Jesus. This morning, we want to count the cost of discipleship. What do we see here about following Jesus? We see three things. First, we see that following Jesus means choosing the cross over comfort. Following Jesus means choosing the cross over comfort. Luke says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Again, where is Jesus going? He is going to the cross. That's where he's going. So when this young man comes up to him and says, I'm going to follow you anywhere, in Jesus' mind, great, you're following me to the cross. That's what he should have expected. That's what we should expect today when we hear Jesus calling us to follow him. But this guy doesn't expect that. That's not what he thinks is going to happen if he follows Jesus. And Jesus recognizes that. He recognizes that the pretentious claim that this man is making, I'll follow you anywhere. Really? He knows what Thomas Manton has put so well. They that rashly leap into a profession of faith usually fall back at the first trial. So what does Jesus say to this man? He says back to him, Well, okay, well, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What is Jesus saying to this man? He's issuing a wake-up call. He wants to make sure that this guy understands following me as a disciple is not going to lead to a life of comfort and ease. It's going to lead to a life of difficulty and hardship and bearing your cross. You see, even in the 12, we see something of this desire to get something from Jesus by being his disciples. We've just seen them talking uh, in the weeks previous to this, and you can read this afternoon if you weren't here for that, that they're consumed with greatness. We are following Jesus, therefore we will be great. We will be thought great in the world. We will be thought great among our people. Here Jesus discerns that this man is not so much looking for greatness, but for comfort. But Jesus says, following me doesn't lead to comfort, it leads to the cross. And Jesus was clear about that from the outset of his ministry, wasn't it? He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So following Jesus involves not the expectation of comfort, but the expectation of the cross. Jesus is a Savior who saves by way of his own death. He died a real, physical death under the wrath of God towards the sins of his people, hanging on a Roman cross. And yet being raised back to life, he now calls his people to follow after him also in their death. Not death on a Roman cross, but death to ourselves. Death to our plans for life. Death to our ideas about life. Death to our idols in this life. Why does he call us to that? Jesus calls us to die to ourselves that we might live in him. Nothing makes us more alive than living under the lordship of Christ, experiencing fellowship with God through him. If you get nothing else from this sermon, get that. Nothing makes us more alive as image bearers of God, as human beings. Nothing makes us more alive than dying to ourselves. As we live under the Lordship of Christ, experiencing fellowship with God through him, among many other things, among many other things, John Piper is famous for speaking about Christians needing to live with a wartime mentality, a, a, a wartime lifestyle. I remember the first time I heard him speak that way, I was a first semester student at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and he was there to deliver the Mullins lectures on preaching. I'd only heard the name John Piper before, but I'd never heard him preach and i never read any of his books. In the lunchtime talk after chapel, I remember distinctly him saying, this is a dangerous place to go to seminary. I thought, what does that mean? And he said, he said, here's why I say that. I look around and it's posh. Everything is nice. All all of the buildings and the furniture and the carpet display the generosity and the wealth of previous generations to, to, to make things comfortable for students to study here. And he says, that is dangerous for seminary students to study here. He says, now I want you, I want you to know I send everybody I can here. But I warn them, it's dangerous to study here because if we get used to the poshness, if we get used to the comfort, if we get used to the niceties, we'll never want to leave. We will not want to go where there is no poshness, there is no comfort, there is no niceness where there's not hard wood, stained everything, and thick pile carpet. We will not want to go to the nations where people are dying. We'll not want to go to the urban cities which are dirty and sinful. We'll not even want to go to our neighbors who don't like us. Because it's hard! And we're used to comfort. So he said, be careful. Likewise, not just for seminary students, but for every Christian, we will lose our edge of living under the Lordship of Christ if we do not actively engage this sense of a wartime mentality. Now, what am I talking about? What's Piper talking about when he talks about a wartime mentality? Well, think about this. Think about this that that James Bradley says in his book, Flags of Our Fathers. He says that during World War II, quote, the entire nation seemed overnight to have snapped out of its Depression-era lethargy. Everyone scrambled to be of help. Rubber was needed for the war effort and gasoline and metal. A women's basketball game at Northwestern University was stopped so that the referee and all ten players could scour the floor for a lost bobby pin. Americans pitched in to support strict rationing programs and their boys turned out as volunteers in various collection drives. Soon butter and milk were restricted along with canned goods and meat. Shoes became scarce and paper and silk, along with paper and silk. People grew victory gardens and drove at the gasoline-saving victory speed of 35 miles an hour. Use it up, wear it out, make do, or do without became a popular slogan. Air raid sirens and blackouts were scrupulously obeyed. America sacrificed. That would never happen today. Not in a million years. And sadly, it doesn't even happen in the church for something far more important than maintaining the freedoms of a political nation as precious as they might be. The question is, do we have that kind of wartime mindset that allows us to ration For the sake of the gospel itself. To willingly forsake the comfort that is not sinful for us to have. The world around us is pushing us to do the opposite. Now advertising campaigns have moved from saying this is a great uh, product. You should buy it. To now you deserve this. Pamper yourself. Give yourself something nice. What does Jesus say? How did I live when I was among you? Foxes had holes, birds had nests. I didn't even have a place to lay down in my head. Now don't misunderstand, Jesus is not anti wealth. Don't listen to people who try to make Jesus and the apostles out to be socialists. That's not the case. But Jesus is against you having wealth if it's going to keep you from God. This is why he said it is very hard for a rich man to get into heaven. Why? Because his wealth is such an easy idol. It's such an easy way to to trust in something other than God. But the larger question we need to concern ourselves is this. Are we more concerned to enjoy the comforts of this life or are we more concerned with spreading the gospel with the resources we've been given? Think about this sad reality. Giving by North American churches was higher during the Great Depression than it is now. Let me say that again. Giving among North American churches was higher during the Great Depression than it was now. Back then it was 3.3% of per capita income. Now it's closer to 2.5%. How in the world does that happen? How in the world does that happen? Now some of you give well beyond 2.5%. And I'm thankful for that. Some of you give less than that. But here's the thing. On one level, the amount's not even that important. The um, the amount in which we give is not really the issue. As a former pastor here, Bill Livingston, used to always say, giving is never about money. Giving is about the heart. Giving is... Is about the heart. And that's where Jesus is hitting at today. He's asking us. Are we coming to him. Following him. Because we expect comfort. Because we expect ease. Because we expect wealth. Or do we come seeing a savior. Who set the pattern himself. By going to the cross. By giving up everything. For the sake of others. That they might be saved. And are we willing to do the same thing. Are we willing to forsake comfort. For the cross. Secondly. Secondly, he says this, following Jesus means embracing sacrifice over safety. Following Jesus means embracing sacrifice over safety. Luke goes on and says to another person, Jesus said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go, uh, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, let's not kill ourselves. That sounds harsh, right? I mean, how insensitive is this? This guy's father is dying, and he wants to attend the funeral, and Jesus is like, nope, you're not going there. We're heading out, and you're coming with us. I mean, was Jesus just anti-family? Well, no, certainly not. In fact, later we're going to see that Jesus excoriates the Pharisees because they've used service to God as an excuse for not taking care of their parents. So Jesus is not anti-parent. He's not anti-family. So what's going on here? Well, let's step back a minute and think about funerals today and how they are nothing like funerals back then. Today, somebody dies and it's literally a matter of days before the funeral is taking place and they're being put into the ground, laid to rest. That's not the case in Jesus' day. Sometimes the burial process took up to a year to complete. Because after the person died, the body would be anointed with spices. If it could be afforded, it would be put into a tomb and there the body was left to decay. Once that decaying process is done, the bones of that person will be collected and put into an ossuary box for final rest in the family tomb. Moreover, if this man's father was sick, he wouldn't even be talking to Jesus. If he was so close to death, the expectation is that the son would be sitting by the father's bed right up until the moment of death. All that creates a very different picture of this interaction from what we may have upon first reading it. It also means the application is about more than just attending funerals. That's not what just what Jesus is worried about here. So what do we learn from this? First, I think, we should think about the expectations this guy would have likely had on him. Think about the expectations this guy would have likely had upon him. Jesus looks at him and says, follow me. And he says, yes, I would love to follow you. Just let me go bury my father first. So what does that mean? Is he even dead yet? Is he even sick? You're talking about years that may go by before this guy goes to follow Jesus. So Jesus says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now Jesus is making a pun here. Because there's two kinds of death in the Bible. There's physical death. The heart no longer beats. The lungs no longer breathe. The brain no longer thinks. There's a kind of death that leads to the expiration of life. People crying and your body being put into the ground. That's one kind of death. A consequence of sin. But there's also a greater consequence of sin, a spiritual death the Bible talks about. And this death, the body lives. Sometimes it lives really, really well. Friends and family, life goes on, but you're dead to the things of God. They are meaningless to you. You may talk of God, you may think of God, but He makes no real difference in your life. And biblically speaking, that kind of death is far worse than the first kind. Spiritual death is far worse than physical death. And you can imagine why the man said what he said. How many people have been hesitant to embrace Christ because of the expectations of friends or family? You know, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I think, I think Jesus is uh, a savior. I think he is the son of God, but I'm just not sure what my family would think. You know, they're paying for college. So, uh, if they don't like this, if they don't agree with this, or they're mad at me, they, they may cut off funds. You know, I'm so tight with my friends and, and we love to go out partying on the weekends and I know they would have nothing to do with this. I might lose my friends. My, my, my spouse. What, 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 what are they going to think if I trust in Jesus and, and, and become a Christian and start doing the church thing? And so they stay away. Perhaps this man as well, perhaps it's the inheritance he's worried about. Perhaps it's just the disappointment to his family, his unbelieving family that he fears. Whatever the expectations are, it prevents him from coming to Jesus as he should. He chooses the safety of what is familiar over the sacrifices Jesus is calling him to. That's why Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. Let the spiritually dead worry about the spiritually dead. Let the spiritually dead worry about the physical dead. There's something far more important that the spiritually alive need to be worried about. And that is proclaiming the kingdom. Doing God's will. Knowing and loving Him. Jesus is saying, don't lose your soul over those whose souls are already lost. Don't let the opinions and expectations of people who are not connected to God, who are not spiritually alive, who have no interest in the Almighty, keep you from knowing Him and loving Him. And living for him. Don't let those with spiritual ignorance. Keep you from spiritual joy. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what Jesus is saying. More than that. Think about what Jesus is calling him to do. Jesus says leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you. Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Here's the thing. Jesus never calls us. He never calls us to sacrifice just for the sake of sacrifice. He never calls us just to give things up for the sake of giving things up. Jesus is not creating a a, a group of ascetics who just think the, the least I have and the more I abuse my body, the better off I'm going to be with God. That's not what Jesus is about. We are sacrificing for a purpose. What is that purpose? That we might proclaim the kingdom of God. What could be more urgent than proclaiming the kingdom Is there anything that should never be sacrificed in order that men and women might experience the saving grace of a holy God? The answer is no, there's nothing. There's nothing in this life that is so sacrosanct that we hold on to it and never are willing to give it away in order that people who are going to hell become people who are going to heaven because they've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing is is worth holding on to so tight that we do not proclaim the gospel. The reconciling power of Christ's death and resurrection can only come to those who hear and believe. So the question is, how are we doing today as the American church? How are we doing today as our own church? Are we clinging to safety, or are we willingly sacrificing for the sake of the kingdom? Dr. David Sills, a professor, a missiologist, and a missionary, provides this reality check for us. He says this, quote, Coca-Cola was invented in 1896, and now the logo and product is known by 94% of the world's population. 2,000 years ago, Jesus gave us the Great Commission, but the gospel is still not accessible to about half the world's people's. We can do it in 117 years for profit, but in 2,000 years we haven't done we haven't done so for the glory of God and obedience to Christ's command. That's a sobering comparison, is it not? Think about this today: over 6,000 people groups, people with their own ethno-linguistic identity, are completely unreached. Now we're tempted to say when we hear that, "Well, but our city's unreached. Not everybody's a Christian." But you're not understanding the term unreached. It doesn't mean everybody has to be saved. It means, is there an opportunity for them to even hear the gospel? And the answer is yes, we're here. Our church is here. There are dozens of churches in this city alone, not to mention this country. The the gospel is everywhere for those with eyes to see and ears to hear and for us who are faithfully going to our neighbors. But there are entire People groups where there's no Christians. There's not even a Bible in their language. There's not even people working on a Bible in their language. For them to hear the gospel, they would have to go to a completely different people group or even a completely different country hours and hours away. They don't know of Jesus. They don't even know enough to be looking for Jesus. But that's not all that we're talking about when it comes to proclaiming the kingdom. Think about those who have been raked over by missionaries looking to add notches on their belt, converts on their prayer letters, but they've not made disciples. The same missionary, David Sills, runs a missionary uh, organization, a missionary ministry, where he specifically goes back to places that are supposedly reached and finds groups that are Christian in name only. And must be retaught the gospel and re-evangelized and actually discipled into being real followers of Jesus Christ. So here's, just to give you a flavor, these are the kinds of questions he gets. These are the kind of the statements that he hears when he meets with pastors of supposedly reached areas. If I eat the flesh of another man, will I get his sins too? A Christian pastor asked that question in Africa. Or pastors in in other places who tell him in South America that they don't have the Bible in their language so they just preach on Sunday morning whatever they dream about on Saturday night. Shaman witchcraft is okay in the church as long as it's used for good and not for evil. That's horrendous. And that's on us. That's on us. All total, we're looking at 4.5 billion people in the world without Christ and on their way to an eternal hell today you see there's safety in remaining ignorant of those facts there's safety in plugging our ears and not thinking about it there is safety in excuse after excuse after excuse of why we can't go there or just next door there is safety in staying at home and having a nice church and a group of friends but that's not what we're called to church We are called to something better. We are called to something more glorious. We are called to something eternal. Namely, sacrificing safety for the cause of the gospel. Both here and to the nations. That means sacrificing our money and our ego and our time and our preferences and our traditions and our plans and our family. Sometimes it means sacrificing our love life this Christmas. We collect and celebrate the Lottie Moon Missions Christmas offering. And, and, and we have new people that come all the time, and, and they're new to Southern Baptist life. We have to tell them, this is who Lottie Moon is. This is this is what this is all about. So, so who was she? Well, she was almost the wife of a man named Crawford Toy. Toy was once pastor of Charlottesville Baptist Church in Virginia. But he, he caught the eye of James P. Boyce, the founder and first president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He saw the education of this man. He saw his erudite thinking. And he said, why don't you come and be a professor that the next generation, the very first generation after the founders started the school, be a professor of Old Testament for us. In that role, he also wound up teaching classes at a women's institute where he met Charlotte Diggs Moon, nicknamed Lottie. The two fell in love and they were engaged to be married, but there soon became a problem. Moon felt the call of missions and Toy felt the call of liberal theology. He denied the inerrancy and the authority of the Bible. And despite the deep affection for Toy, despite the fact that if she married him, she would be set for life. Not just financially, but in terms of her reputation within the Baptist life and the church life. This man was going to be a seminary professor at Harvard University. She would be hosting parties and having people lining up to see her and speak with her and want to be her friend. And she sacrificed it for the sake of the gospel. She said, I cannot reconcile your beliefs with the scriptures and God's call on my heart to obey and go to the nations. So in 1873, Moon gave up her only chance at marriage. She died a widow, or she died single. Think about what that would have been like just for any woman in her day. She sacrificed the security that she could have had for the sake of the gospel among the people of China. Having obeyed the great commission, she died on the mission field, a faithful servant of God. And having been forced out of Southern Seminary, Toy died a Unitarian professor at Harvard, denying the deity of Christ, believing religion was merely a product of human belief. Will we cling to safety? Or will we embrace sacrifice as we heed Jesus' words, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Following Jesus means choosing the cross over comfort. It means following Jesus in sacrifice over safety. And finally, following Jesus means that we are to follow him pursuing determined commitment over doubtful indecision. Following Jesus means pursuing determined commitment over doubtful indecision. Last week, we saw how James and John wanted to be like Elijah calling down fire from heaven to destroy those who rejected Jesus. And today, in this passage, we see another parallel to this time. This time, though, to Elijah's successor, Elisha. In the final encounter, Luke tells us that another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now back in 1 Kings 19, God has told Elijah he's going to anoint Elisha as his successor. And as he's passing through the fields, he sees this man Elisha doing his job, plowing his family's fields with a team of 12 oxen. And he goes and he throws his cloak over the shoulders of Elisha. And Elijah knows what that means. It's an invitation to be a disciple of Elijah, to learn and to see what it means to become a prophet of God. And so he immediately leaves the oxen in the field and he runs to Elijah and he says, I am ready to go with you. Let me go, kiss my parents goodbye and I will follow you. And Elijah says, go ahead. What difference does it make? It's fine. Go say goodbye to your family. So Elisha runs home. He breaks up his wooden plow and he uses the wood as kindling to cook up all the 12 oxen that he was just plowing with. Creates this great feast for all of his family and friends, bids them goodbye, and he never sees them again. Now, Elijah had no problem with Elijah going back and saying goodbye to his family, but Jesus says, forget it, forget it. He says, the one who has his hand at the plow and keeps looking back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Now, now, what's the difference between Elisha and this guy? Well, some have said it's simply this. Jesus was more important than Elijah. And frankly, even if that's the only explanation we had, it would be good. It would be okay. It would be enough. R.C. Sproul talks about being in seminary under his professor, John Gerstner. And after teaching on the sovereignty of God and salvation, he asked the class a question. He said, all right, Gentlemen. If God has sovereignly decreed election and reprobation from all eternity, why should we be concerned about evangelism? Sproul said the students were set in a semicircle and he was thankful because he was at one end and Gershner started on the opposite and asking each student to answer the question. And he said none of them had an answer. They hem-hauled, they looked down, some of them saw us and said, I have no idea. He very quickly got to Sproul. And he said, well, Dr. Gerstner, I know this isn't the answer you're looking for, but one small reason we should still be concerned about evangelism is that, well, uh, you know, after all, Christ does command us to do evangelism. Sproul says, Gerstner's eyes started to flame. He said, ah, I see, Mr. Sproul, one small reason is that your Savior, the Lord of Glory, the King of Kings, has so commanded it? A small reason, Mr. Sproul? Is it barely significant to you that the same sovereign God who sovereignly decrees your election also sovereignly commands your involvement in the task of evangelism? Sproul went on to say, oh, how I wished I'd never used the word small. (laughs) You get the point, though, don't you? Even if we don't understand it, if Christ has commanded it, then we obey. We follow, we believe, and we trust, and we never look back end of discussion. And I think that that is part of what's going on here. It's not just that Jesus has commanded it, but again, he knows what's in the heart of this young man, and he knows the temptation he's going to face to look back. Even now he sees it. He says, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back as fit for the kingdom. What's the best way to plow a field? It's not by doing this, because what's going to happen? You're going to be pulling the plow this way and that way, and you're going to have zigzag lines and nice straight ones. Everybody knows if you're plowing a field, you fix your eyes on the horizon, and you just keep going. And so here Elisha, what did he do? He burned everything. He killed the cows. How is he going to plow a field? He's going to come home. There's no oxen. There's no plow. He says, I'm done with this. I have been called to be a prophet of God and now nothing else matters. There's nothing else left here for me. I'm not looking back. I'm pressing forward. And this is the failure of this young man. He was not prepared. Jesus knows. He was not prepared to just say, I'm done. I'm now following Jesus and nothing behind me matters anymore. He was not prepared to fix his eyes on the horizon to look for the future. He was not prepared to be all in. He was tempted to waver in his commitment. He was tempted to be indecisive in his determination. He was tempted to look back. And we see so many doing the same thing today. They are called to follow Jesus, but they just can't disconnect from their old lives. They want to go back to their old haunts that characterize their sinful lives. They want to go back and hang out with the same friends that, that they, that they engaged in that sinful activity with. They never will be able to grow spiritually because they still keep reaching back and looking back and having their old life as a dear part of them when Jesus says, cut it off and be done. Look forward, trust in me and the task that is at hand and let's advance the kingdom of God. Luke makes it clear through Jesus' words. The disciples, any disciple fitting of Jesus cannot vacillate in his commitment. There cannot be conditions. You can't say ifs with God. You cannot say to Jesus, I will follow you if first, if only, if maybe luke is showing us that the commitment that jesus expects is absolute but let's be clear as tim keller rightly reminds us absolute commitment is not absolute obedience nobody can obey absolutely everyone is a sinner but absolute commitment means a willingness to abdicate a willingness to abdicate the throne of your life. A willingness to take all conditions off your allegiance to Jesus. Even if you fail, unlike the people of Israel, you never say, I wonder what it will be like to go back to Egypt. I wonder what it will be like. No, you're always looking forward to the promised land. In 1941, Winston Churchill addressed the people of Britain over BBC Radio. Hitler was advancing across Europe, and the people knew that if they were to survive, they needed to fight. They literally needed to fight for their lives. So over the radio, Winston Churchill told the British people, we shall not fail or falter. We shall not weaken or tire. Give us the tools, and we will finish the job. The people believed that, and they succeeded. Sixty years later, President George W. Bush on another continent addressed the people of the United States from the House of Congress and gave a very similar speech in response to the attacks of september eleventh. He sounded a similar alarm, though he acknowledged the enemy was far different than we'd ever faced before. Nevertheless, he assured the nation with these words We will not waver, we will not tire, we will not falter, and we will not fail but the response of this nation was far different. In the immediate days, we did rally around those words with unprecedented unity and goodwill from the suburbs to the highest offices of government, but it didn't take long before all of that went away. Why? Because only President Bush, a handful of politicians, and about half the nation really believed in the importance of what he was calling us to do. Only some believe the threat we faced was really as dire as he said it was. The rest go on with life and politics, believing those things were more important. Why the difference? People of Britain had counted the cost. The People of this nation didn't. People of Britain knew that they were facing the most important events in their life and the people of this nation didn't. This morning... We don't stand like Britain. We don't stand like the United States. We stand a far different place because the most important person in front of our eyes is Jesus himself. The most important events in the course of human history that we can possibly conceive of are the 30-some years where Jesus was born in a manger. He lived a life of righteousness into adulthood, offered himself as a sacrifice to sins, was raised back from the grave, and ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And what faces us is this, to hear the call to follow Him, the call to count the cost, and the call to believe. And how we will respond to that call will be determined by one thing and one thing only, how significant we think Jesus really is, how significant we really believe Jesus is. If you believe Jesus is exactly who He said He is, that He is the Son of God who bore the Father's just wrath against your sins and death, and who was raised in justifying glory and now reigns over all creation as the king above all kings, then the cost won't matter. You will count the cost and you will say, that's nothing. That is nothing. It is so minuscule to give that up for the joy of loving and worshiping and obeying and following my Savior, Jesus Christ. So today I I call all of us let the dead bury their own dead. Let's put our hand to the plow and not look back. Let us go and proclaim the kingdom of Christ. Oh, Father, that, that is the deepest desire of my heart, both for myself and for this people that I love so dear in front of me. But, God, only you can work grace in our hearts only you can cultivate faith that will lead us to do that to truly embrace what it means to follow your son not just as savior but as lord to follow him as disciples father it is my prayer even as we will sing in just a minute that you will so work in our lives by the power of your spirit that jesus will now and forever be first in everything in our lives Father, we ask this for the sake of his glorious name in our midst and among the nations. Amen.